0: Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to guide, lead, show us what you want us to see from this section. And we just thank you that you love us so much and you care for us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. John chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And the third day there was a marriage in Canaan of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. And Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with you? Mine hour is not come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. And Jesus said unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them to the brim, And he said unto them, draw out now and bear it to the governor of the feast, and they bore it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, he knew not whence it was, for the servants which drew the water knew, but the servants who drew the water knew. And the governor of the feast called the bridegroom and said unto him, every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse, but you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Canaan of Galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed on him. After this, he went down to Copernicum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples, and they continued there not many days. So this is the first recorded miracle of Jesus. So we're going to look at at it a little bit. We're going to take it apart. It is both an, an actual event that happened, but it has a lot of symbology in it as well. So as we look at this, so it says, first off, the third day there was a marriage in Canaan of Galilee. Third day automatically starts making us remember resurrection. And three in the scripture has this idea of the divine purpose and completeness of God in it. So that's the resurrection and and this particular thing. And so the first day of his travel that we were, that John recorded, he he, he moved in and then he started calling, he, was, he left the baptism and then he got called by, started calling his disciples. And the third day we have a wedding celebration. And when I read about the wedding, I think about, especially after the resurrection, I think about the marriage supper of the Lamb, which would be during the tribulation period where we as the church will be united with Jesus during that seven year celebration during the t- trials and tribulations down here on earth. And so let's set the stage about this wedding that he's been attending it is a Jewish wedding lasted just seven days. All right. It wasn't a one day event like ours. It was a seven day event culminating with the, the bride and the groom going off to a room and consummate in their marriage at the end of the seven day celebration to run out of wine in this celebration. Huh? Uh, it doesn't tell us, but it's it's very quick. I mean, to run out of wine, period, is a big deal. All right? And we don't know. It says on the third day we had the wedding. So we don't know how far into the wedding they ran out of wine. But we want to note a couple of things. First off, Mary was invited, and Jesus and his disciples were invited. So this is probably a family member who's being being married off because the Jesus and his brothers and sisters and all are... And his disciples are all being invited to this wedding. Also for us, most people believe that it's a big deal that Mary is invited to a wedding anyway because she had a reputation. All right. Now, Jesus is 30 30 years old at this point, but she still, you did not lose your reputation of having a baby out of wedlock in those days. All right. It was a big deal for them. And so she's invited, Jesus is invited to this wedding celebration in Canaan. And so we have this whole process going on. And Jesus' mother comes to him and says, hey, they've run out of wine. And again, we don't know when, how far into this ceremony they, we don't know if it's first, second, third, fourth, sixth day. We don't know when they're running out of the wine uh, because it doesn't tell us. Why? Because it's not important to us to know when they ran out of wine. All right. The rest of the story is about the replacement of the wine. Now, oftentimes in the scripture, and this is where we're going to say there's some symbology behind this. Wine represents the Holy Spirit and being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to bring that out as we go through this, through this story. That the Holy Spirit is there. So there's some points to, that need to be made as we go through here. They ran out, and Jesus' answer, and a lot of people get bugged by Jesus' answer. He said, woman, what have I to do with you? My hour is not yet come. All right. There's three points in that one sentence that I want to bring out. First off, he calls her woman. And a lot of people go, well, that's so mean and nasty and, and, and obnoxious. Why would he not call her mother? I believe that he's not calling her mother because he's bringing a separation. It's time for me now to go about my father's business. So I'm not referring to you as mother in this particular case. All right. Uh, now he doesn't reject her. You know, we see him taking care of her on the cross. He's not totally rejecting her, but I think in this place he's making a statement. All right. Uh, woman, not mother. <laughs> But woman, who do you think you are? I'm not under your authority anymore. I am under the authority of my father. So it's kind of a simple, simple thing that we But a lot of people go, well, that's so, he is being so mean and so nasty calling her woman and not mother. And I guess in one sense you might say that, but he's making a point that I am now, just as when he was 12 years old, when he said to Mary and Joseph, didn't you know that I would be about my father's business? He's 30 years old. He's ready to be able to take a position of a rabbi and a teacher. And I think he's saying to her, you know, because he's going to say, it's not, not my time yet. I'm not supposed to be doing miracles yet. And, you know, you're presuming upon me under your position as mother to tell me what to do. And it's not the time to, to do this. And it says, woman, what have I to do with you? This, this And he goes, it is not my hour it is not my time now I'm not supposed to be doing miracles yet it's not not quite there but I want to note that he was also submitted to his mother he honored his mother even though it was not his time he did a miracle for at her request and you notice that she did not argue with him you know it's kind of an amazing thing what did she do she turned to the servants and said whatever he tells you do what kind of faith did she have He's already told her, it's not my time. You know, I, basically, it, it's not time for a miracle. And yet she tells the servants, whatever he tells you, you go do. And, he, and she walks away. Basically saying, I know that my son is going to take care of this because we cannot have the embarrassment of no wine at this, at this uh, wedding. Now, she's thinking very, very selfishly through all of this. Hey, you know, the family is going to be embarrassed by no wine in here. We, you know, we can't have this happen. Go go do this, which also indicates to us how many times does God answer our desires, not just our needs. Now, God has promised to give us to meet all our needs. Now, sometimes especially as Americans, we think our needs are much more important than what God says our needs are. And if we were living in the rest of the world, we would be just wanting to have a roof over our head and some food on the table, you know, a couple times a day. In America, we have to have a nice house and and all the gadgets that go in the house and a and a phone and a car and and three meals that aren't that are, that would feed an entire family for for a week in most places. And but Jesus is here saying, you have a you have a desire, and oftentimes God will meet our desires. Now Mary's looking at it for a very selfish purpose. you know she doesn't want the family to look bad you know the wedding the wedding groom and, and family to look bad but but God still answers her desire, and oftentimes God will give us desires that may or may not even be needed just because He is a loving father, and he wants to bless us now does it mean He gives us everything that we could possibly want no? Nope. That would make us very selfish and, and bratty. But he does promise to give us our needs. And yet he will oftentimes give us great blessings besides. And here he's going to do a blessing. He's going to bless this family that is holding this feast. And why did they run out of wine? I don't know. Maybe they had more people than they expected. I don't know. You know, Party crashers. We don't know how, why they ran out of wine. Maybe, maybe they had somebody who was a real heavy drinker. We don't know. We don't know why they ran out of wine or how early in the, in the celebration they ran out, ran out of wine. But this is going to be very interesting. So Jesus turned to the, them and he saw six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews. And that meant that it was set there for washing. All right, for washing because they wash their hands and, and feed and everything else frequently. And it said that they held two to three firkins apiece. Now, this is kind of an interesting process each, uh, each of these items, each of these ones would end up holding 18 to 27 gallons of water. All right. Jesus has them fill up six of these items. So there is somewhere between 108 to 162 gallons of water turned into wine. That's a lot of wine for this party. I tend to kind of think that this party, that they ran out of wine way, way too early. Yeah. You know, because I don't think Jesus gave them ex- excess wine to last them for, for months. I think they ran out fairly early just because of the amount of wine Jesus made for them. And I don't know, I mean, I don't know how long it would take uh, people in a party to go through 108 to 106, uh, 162 gallons of wine. And you, in that day and age, you pretty much watered down your wine too. You you made water. You took the wine and you watered it. You watered it down because it was what they did. That wine was very, very, uh, huh, potent. potent, strong. So they would water it down. So we probably have much more wine than a hundred, than this 162 gallons of wine to be served. And so this is all that's going on. And you think about this gift that he gave them. And provision that he gave them uh and so again, I don't know how long i I'm not a alcohol person, you know some of you that have drunk alcohol may you know I've heard some people probably would wipe that wine out in just a couple of days, but uh I don't know how long it was going to take it for uh for this party, <laughs> but you know I, I've met people that drink you know a pack of pack of beer a night you know and uh bottles of wine you know gallons of wine each day, and you know their their entire you know fifths of alcohol, you know, they wipe it out. So I don't know how long this would have lasted at a party. I'm outside of my realm. But it's a lot of wine no no matter what. And Jesus just, he he told them fill these water pots. And they filled them. And notice that he, they filled them to the brim. There was no room for anything else to go in there. So, He couldn't be dropping powders into it and doing magical stuff to it. It had to be a miracle. But it's also the idea when we think about wine representing the Holy Spirit, God wants to fill us all the way to the top with the Holy Spirit. And He does not hold back. He gives us, when we are saved, He gives us the Holy Spirit in fullness. Now what we do with Him can be a whole other story. All right. The Holy Spirit indwells us and we are placed in him and we can be able to be totally changed by the Holy Spirit because we are full. The fullness of the Godhead. The, the scriptures oftentimes talk about being filled, being full. The Greek word most of the time when it uses that is pleroma, which means filled to the very top. Nothing else can be added. God comes into our life and he fills us so full that there is no more room for God in us. Now that doesn't mean that that's all of God because God is infinite and can fill whatever room is available. It just means he completely fills us. Now how much power we give to the Holy Spirit is going to be another story. And I think about this many times and I heard this long ago, you know, how many times do we let God into our heart and go, God, I'm going to to let you into my heart but I'm going to sit on the throne. God, or as I've said it sometimes, God, we're going to, I'm going to let you in my heart, but this room over here is where you get to stay until I need you. And then I'll open the door and I'll come see you. That is not what he is desiring for us and not what he wants. He comes in and he is to be master and Lord of our life. Anything less than that, we are shortchanging ourselves. And this is very important. Why how often do we shortchange ourselves with the power of God? Because we decide, I want to be God. I want to be Lord in my life. God, I want you when I want you, but you know, you just kind of stay off in the corner and when I need you, I'll come and get you. And God doesn't respond to that, but you know, many times we try to do that. And he says, no, I am Lord and Master, or, or I'm not going to be part of this. And he sits back and waits for us to be ready to make him Lord and Master. And this is very important for us. After they had filled this, you know, it doesn't tell us that Jesus said anything. It doesn't tell us that he did anything. The servants filled the water. And then what did he say in verse 9? Draw now and bear it to the governor of the feast. Can you imagine being the servant? You have filled this big pot with water. And Mary has told you, whatever he says, Go do. And then he says, "Okay, go take a cup of this and give it to the, give it to the master of the of the feast." How would you have liked to have been that servant bearing that cup of water, or at least what you think is water, to the master of the of the feast? Uh, just wondering what's going to happen here. Are you going to be punished for bringing water to the to the wi- to the wine master? <laughs> you know. Just, I think about this is something I kind of think about. You know, this is a character nobody ever thinks about. The servant bringing this cup that he knows is water or she knows whoever the servant. The servant knows that they put water in this pot. They take a cup out and they're going to present it to the master of the feast who, who is looking for wine. And they're bringing what they think is a cup of water. Possibly, possibly, Notice. they might have. It may have, looked, may have looked like wine. It may, it may not have looked like wine until they actually, actually did the step of presenting it like, like they were told. And you're right. I mean, it could have. It could have looked like wine right from the beginning. I don't know, but my picture is that it wasn't. You know, a step of faith. Mary had a step of faith, saying, "Do whatever he says," and then she doesn't. She like disappears. They take a step of faith by filling the filling these pots with water and think how long it's going to take to fill you know 108 to 162 gallons of water that had to be you know pulled up bucket by bucket from the well i don't know how big their bucket was but still it's going to take a it's going to take a little bit of time to, to get the, these things filled and then he says okay now just draw some out and give it to the to the wine uh, you know to the master of the the feast And you're right, maybe it looked like wine and there was no fear in it, but I have this feeling that it was a step of faith in their case to hand this man a glass that, you know, would have looked like water. Now, I could be wrong, you know, and that's how I've always pictured it, that step of faith. Uh, And so all the, look at the faith that is being developed here. Jesus tells Mary, it's not my time, I'm not going to do miracles. Uh, Well, son, I'm going to tell them to do whatever you say, so it's up to you and I'm going away, you know, if you don't do anything, there won't be any wine, and we'll, and we'll be the laughingstock stock of, of Canaan. Uh, but I'm going to walk away. And he does this for her. He does this for his mother, or for the bride and groom. I don't know who, who, because it doesn't really tell us. And so we see here God making wine. And I can imagine that this was probably the best wine that had ever been in existence. Uh, when God does something he does it right so I can imagine what this wine would have been when this guy and we know his reaction is kind of very interesting he's going to be basically saying this is the best wine I've ever tasted too and so they bring it to him and verse 9 says and when the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine he knew not where it was from but the servants which drew the water knew and the governor of the feast called the bridegroom I think this is very interesting. Jesus takes no credit for this miracle. All right? Notice, the, the master of the thief, feast, not thief. <laughs> the master of the feast calls the bridegroom and praises him. All right? And nowhere in here does it say Jesus took credit for this. Who knew? The disciples, His six disciples that he's called already and the servants but nobody else knew who had done this miracle why it wasn't his time he did not want it to be known at this point in time so he's keeping it a very quiet event and saying i'm just going to do this and you know the bridegroom gets to have the credit for it how often does god do that with us as Christians. He does something through us. And oftentimes we get credit that we don't deserve because it's God and the Holy Spirit that does the work and we get the credit. Now we, we, we know we, we're the servants. We know, we know that it was him, but still there's credit that goes to that individual. How many of us listen to speakers on the radio and TV and think, wow, look how wonderful this speaker is. I'm sure that speaker is probably going, wow, look, what, you know, look how God is using me. You know, I never expected to be reaching the world or the, or the nation or thousands of people, and here God is using me to do this. And when God uses us, we need to stay humble and say, thank you, God, for doing what you're doing, even if we get credit for doing it. Now, now don't get so crazy because, I oh, it's all God, it's all God. Well, of course it's all God. Otherwise, there wouldn't be anything worth praising. All right? If it's going to be glorifying God, it was all God. So don't worry about it. Just don't get puffed up by what happens. And I've seen it happen where people, especially pastors, they build this ministry. They're nice and humble, never expected it. And then they get someplace and start thinking, well, look at the ministry that I have built. And forget that it was God who built it. So we never want to cross that line and say, look at all that I am doing. Because without God being the one behind it, nothing would have happened. So this, this guy tastes that wine, and he calls the bridegroom, and what's he says? He says, every man at the beginning does bring forth good wine, and when the, when the men, it says well drunk in the King James, but it says when they are drunk, is what it really says, when they are drunk, they bring out the, the lesser wine. All right. He goes, but you have kept the good wine until now. So this indicates it's a couple days into the feast. He's going, you know, most people bring out the good stuff, and people get good and drunk, and then they bring out the the stuff that's not good quality. All right. And he goes, but you've done something totally different. So, and again, this idea of the, of the uh, feast master, there would be somebody. I would say he's kind of the coordinator you know, the wedding coordinator, the caterer. He's the one that's in charge of this party and, party and the toasts and keeping everything moving the right way. And he's got the bridegroom and he says, you've done something that nobody does. You, bring, you brought out the, the lesser wine and now you're bringing out the good wine when nobody knows the difference. Kind of an amazement to him, but you know, he's also kind of probably going, you're kind of a fool. You know, he, he's praising them on one side, but at the same time, he's probably thinking, You're, how foolish can you be? You know, nobody's going to know that you've given them the good wine at the end of the party. Because they, they're, you know, they, they're, they're out of their minds with the, the alcohol that you've already given them. And But, you know, he still has his taste. He hasn't been getting drunk because he's the coordinator. And, you know, this indicates to us that there was some knowledge that the wine was not there. That the wine was running out. Can you imagine he's the he's the caterer he's the servants were probably going uh, uh, we're running out, we're running out of wine we're a little low on wine and he's probably telling them, okay water it down give them half cups don't give them don't give them full cups let's let's stretch the wine as far as we can and all of a sudden he's given great wine you know and he's probably thinking where did all this where did this wine come from because you guys were telling me that you know we're running out and I, I'm speculating on this but He's the one that's in charge of the in charge of this. And Mary said, "We're running out. We're out of wine. We are out of wine." You know, and so all of a sudden there's wine, and not only is it wine, but it is the best wine he's ever tasted because God created it. All right, and you know, I don't know what God did to make this happen. You know, He's He's God. He can have done whatever it. But to change water into wine, for God is nothing. You know, for us it would be quite a trick to take plain water and turn it into wine. And we can turn grapes in, into wine but to turn water into wine is a big, would be a much bigger deal. And this is the wine and, the, and he's saying this is the best. Why, why did you do it this you know, Can you picture the bridegroom? He's like, uh, I have no idea because I, follow, I followed the normal routine. You know, I followed the normal routine. I put the best wine we had in the house out and now you're telling me that this stuff is better and I don't even know where this stuff came from. And it's quite possible he didn't know, because what is it said? The servants knew, the disciples knew, and Jesus knew. And all of a sudden, the bridegroom is getting credit for something that he has no clue what's going on. Where did all this good wine come from? And I don't know if he was, you know, not drunk enough (laughs) to really know what was going on either. But, you know, so understand this miracle is is a kind of an interesting miracle. And Jesus does not claim credit for it. He's not looking for credit because it's not his time. He doesn't go up to the man and say, oh, by the way, it wasn't the bridegroom that did this. This is, this is a miracle made by God. All right, he doesn't go do it. He never corrects the, the misconceptions. He just lets them go with what they're, what they're trying to, to believe. And, and John just says, this is the beginning or the principle of the miracles did Jesus in Canaan of galilee and manifested forth his glory and his disciples believed in him or were persuaded of him and this is something we need to remember when we see the word believe in in the new testament it means to be persuaded of something all right so when we believe in the name of jesus unto salvation that means we are persuaded that he is the only way to salvation all right and i've I've gone out soul winning I had some people going out soul winning and they go I just going to get them to save the prayer and they'll and they'll be saved I go no if they don't believe the prayer they're not saved." well God will hold them accountable I go no that won't does not work that way because believe means to be persuaded I am absolutely sure that he is my, sal- my salvation that he died on the cross for my sins that he was buried and on the third day rose again for my sins And then I don't have to ever worry, am I saved, because I am already persuaded. I have no question. Now, I understand that we can't be perfectly persuaded when we get saved. The Holy Spirit comes in, and then he changes us, and then we can start really being persuaded because he is changing our life. And and I've said this many times. I believe that everybody who gets saved has to have something in their life that was changed in a miraculous way, because we're made a new creation. Now we're not 100% changed now I've met people that have had miraculous changes in their life when they get saved and you know what I'm glad God did not do that to me because most of the ones that I've seen do that are the most arrogant people in the world because they're going God saved me and changed me overnight why did he do it to you I have no idea why he didn't do it to me Maybe he's taken a long time to change me maybe I'm more stubborn than you are I don't know <laughs> So this is the first miracle that Jesus did. And it was basically for the disciples. He did it very quietly. And only the disciples saw this one. And he kept it quiet. Now the servants knew it because they were, it, filled it and all of a sudden they've got wine. They're dealing with wine and not water. Now that's got to be an amazing thing to them alone. How many times does God, have you been in a place where God has done something in your life that you didn't even realize he did until you look back on it? You're going along, going along, going along, doing doing what you think you're supposed to be doing. The next thing you look and realize, wow, God just did something big using me. These these servants were just obeying instructions, and all of a sudden they're they're playing with wine. Yeah, and from what was said, some of the best wine that had ever been in existence. Yeah, can you imagine how they kind of felt? You know. We just, we just filled these buckets with water, these containers with water, and now we've got great wine. What happened? All we did was obey. And I think this is important for us. When we obey God, oftentimes we will see the same thing happen. We will look back and say, God did something great and used me to do it. And I think this is important for us because oftentimes that's exactly what happened. You know, think about this. You know, look at any of our heroes of the, of the scriptures. David comes to the battlefield and Goliath is challenging the armies of, of Israel. Now, David was sure that God would deliver him. But can you imagine how much, you know, fear and trepidation he still had walking out onto the battlefield against a nine foot two in, you know, inch uh, uh, opponent, fully armed? And he has a shepherd staff and a, and a sling. Now, he had a lot of confidence in God, but you know, there had to be some, some concern. Be Shadrach, Shadrach, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego standing in the, the plain of Shinar. And the music plays, and you're supposed to bow down to this, this idol. And they're the only ones on the entire plain with hundreds or thousands of people standing. How difficult would that have been? Yes, they had confidence. I love their answer to Nebuchadnezzar. Our God's able to deliver us? But whether he does or doesn't, we still will follow him. But, you know, was there any kind of fear in their hearts at all? They're humans. You know, I put myself in their place, and yes, I would have trusted God. But, man, I would have been, all right, I'm going to burn up here. <laughs> all because I followed God, I'm going to burn up. Daniel being cast into the lion's den. You know, all of our key characters in the Bible, if we think about them, how would we feel if we were put in their place? Now, some of us would have failed. We wouldn't even been in their place because we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have made the right decision to get to their place. But we make that decision, how would we feel facing what we're facing, what they faced? It would be tough. And here these servants were being, just doing their job. Just, Mary said, obey him, we're obeying him. Next thing you know, wow! We're we're passing out wine again. Now, what a attitude that they must have had, what an amazement they would have had, saying, "We know we put water in there," and all he said was, "Go take it to the man," and here and here we now have wine. Now, what what went through their heads? I kind of wonder sometimes. Do you think they, would become followers of Jesus? they probably did. Who knows? Uh, that or they go, man, he's quite a magician. He made, he, uh, we didn't see him do anything. So we don't know what their attitude was. But you're probably right. I'm, I'm sure that that was one of the things that helped them. They probably were looking at him from that point on. Uh, but the disciples saw it. And they were amazed and believed. And then there's this little sentence that I've never heard anybody ever talk about. Verse 12. After this, he went down to Copernicum, he and his mother and his brethren and his disciples And they continued there not many days. So after the wedding, he goes home with mom for a couple days and his brothers before he starts his ministry. And I've never heard anybody mention it. It's just something that stood out to me. And so he went with his mother and his brethren. Now, we know that he had several brothers, half half brothers. Uh, So he goes with them. And then later on, we'll find out that he had at least two sisters because it says his, you know, names four brothers to come and get him, and his sisters. So we know he have quite a family that Mary and Joseph have after, after Jesus is born. So he goes with them after this wedding, and he hangs out with them for a short period of time, for not many days. Now this is something he's doing to honor mom, I'm sure, before he goes into ministry. Hang out with mom before it's time to take off, because she is going to kind of suffer over the next four years it's going to look good he's raising up in popularity people are following him but can you imagine how Mary felt toward the end when everybody is criticizing him? they're trying to kill him they're trying to to take in and capture him and you know badmouth him and they're calling they're calling him a you know a bastard because they're going you don't have no father you know you your your mother and father were illegitimate when you were born And this is said in one place where they go, well, when the Pharisees told Jesus, we know our father, what were they saying? And you don't. You know, We know who our father is, and you don't know who your father is. So they considered him illegitimate, an illegitimate child. And so this is, he's going back, and he's honoring his mother and saying he's going to hang out. Now, we don't know if Joseph's alive at this point, but Joseph's never mentioned. After the... After the, they go out to, to uh, Egypt, the only reference we have is, is not this Joseph's son? So it's apparent that Joseph came back to Galilee and started some kind of business. But by the time he's ready to be ministering, it does not appear that Joseph's alive. All right? And that's quite possible. It was not unusual for somebody to be 30 years old when they, as a man before they got married, because the family of the mother always wanted them to be well established. Nobody in their right mind in those days would have been like we do in our families where you know two people get married and neither one of them have any kind of career or, or job and you know that would have been looked so down on them they're going no you're going to get married to somebody who can take care of you. we don't care if he's thirty years old and you're only fourteen, but you know he's going to be able to take care of you all right, but you're not going to be both fourteen and not not have any any home or any any income so it's quite possible that Joseph was quite a bit older than than Mary and could possibly have been dead by this period of time but we again never see him we never hear about him outside of them going off to Egypt and so we don't know where it is he's not mentioned in this group of people that have gone to the wedding he's not mentioned in this group of people that Jesus hangs out with for a couple of days which is family which is which is his family so what it is I don't know Would doesn't really matter but he's going to make a short visit and stay with mom before he goes into full time ministry around around the area now they've gone down to Copernicum which is about 24 miles from Canaan so it's a full day's trip from Canaan to Copernicum as he makes his trip down to spend time with his mom and that's where he's at. And Copernicum was a town very close to Nazareth. And it's apparent that everything Jesus does centers around Copernicum when he goes in there. Copernicum was the major city of that area of the northern Galilee area. Nazareth was considered a uh, place where, no, as, as Nathaniel said, nobody, nothing good comes from Nazareth. Everything he did was in Copernicum. That's where the synagogue was. That's where... Uh, the nice people lived and that's where the businesses were all right quite possible that joseph would have worked in copernicum rather than nazareth jesus probably would have worked in copernicum when he was growing up so all of these things so they go to copernicum and he stays with his mom verse 13 and the and the jews passover was hand, at hand and jesus went up to Jerusalem. And found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and changers of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers money and overthrew the tables. And he said unto them that sold doves, take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. And the disciples remembered what was written, the zeal of your house has eaten me up. All right, so Jesus spends just a couple days with his mom. Why? Passover was coming. All right, and we've talked about this. The most important thing about Passover for a Jewish male was that you were supposed to go to the temple. It's one of the three ceremonies every year that every man in every Jewish man was to go to. Now, the women could choose to go or not go, but the men were required to go. Now, he's going from Galilee down to Jerusalem or up to Jerusalem, because even though it's to the south, it's always uphill. <laughs> so he's going up to Jerusalem. And here it says, and John is very carefully, as he's wording it, it goes, the Jews' Passover was at hand. Remember, John's audience is not the Jews. So he's making the point here, the Passover, which is the Jewish big ceremony was at hand so jesus had to go to jerusalem all right and he's done this many times he's defined several words as he's gone along and we have brought those out as we've gone along so he says the jewish passover was at hand and jesus went up to jerusalem this is going to be a trip of several hundred miles uh, probably four or five days to get there unless he was in a big hurry but uh And doesn't tell us whether he took the short way through Samaria or the long way, one of the two long ways. And we've talked about this. Uh, Most of the Jews would not go through Samaria. The Samaritans were half-breeds. They had nothing to do with them. And so even though you started up at Galilee and the easiest way to get to Jerusalem was to go straight through Samaria, the Jews would go all the way to the Jordan River, cross the river, go down the the east east side of the Jordan River, get down to the ford down by by Jerusalem, cross over, go up the mountainside to get to Jerusalem, or they would go all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, go down the major highway down the Mediterranean Sea, and come back up to Jerusalem that way. So they took a long way to get to where they were going. Uh, And that's kind of an interesting thing. And Jesus, we know, violates this in many, many places. He walks through Samaria several times, much to the dismay of the disciples. You know, why would you do this? You know, we don't do this kind of stuff. But he goes to Jerusalem. He gets to the temple. And what does he see in the temple? There are people that are selling ox, sheep, doves, and changing the money. All right? What is this money changing bit about? Basically, the Jewish priest would not allow you to make a sacrifice with Roman money. So in the temple, they would have people that would exchange your Roman money for temple money, at usually exorbitant rates. (laughs) All right, So they cheated the people. This is the exchange rate we're going to give you. You're going to give me one Roman denarii, and this is what we're going to give you in return. And you now can give that to the temple, basically cheating the people in the temple. They also did it with the animals. People would come in with these nice animals that they brought from, from home to sacrifice. The priest would look at it and said, nope, it's not perfect. It can't be offered for sacrifice. But we have these, these sheep over here and these oxen over here. We'll be more than happy to sell you one of these. And by the way, we'll take yours and trade. You know, he comes into the temple where they're supposed to be worshiping God. And he sees people cheating them on, on their coins, cheating them on their, on their, their offerings. And he gets quite upset quite upset it, and it says this, you know in verse 15 and he made a scourge or a whip of small cords and he drove out of the temple <coughs> he drove them out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the money changers and overthrew their tables this is quite an adventure now when you think about this the temple had their own guard And the priests were there and yet he drives all these people out. I've always thought this was very interesting. Did the power of God come out of him so strongly that nobody dared to challenge him? I think so. They have an entire squad of soldiers there to take him out if they wanted if they wanted to. And I would have, you know, if somebody came into our church and started tearing up the church, you know, we would do whatever it took to, to subdue them, and yet none of that Happened in this event, none of the priests came up and you know and tried to stop, and the temple guard did not come up and stop to him. I have always believed that God's power was so strong in him that nobody dared come his way, yeah, and I really do believe that that's what it was. And have you ever been around somebody that was excluding God's power at any event? You know, it's an amazing thing when you feel that kind of power coming out, even if it's not negative. It's just you can sometimes feel the power of God. And I think they felt that power. It was coming out, he was so angry at their desecration of the temple. And God's fury came out of him, just as it, just as they said, that it was written, the zeal of my house hath eaten me up. This is a reference to Psalm 69.9, all right? And it's a Messianic prophecy in in that Psalm. And they're going, he overthrew the tables, and he said to them, take these things hence, Make not my father's house a house of merchandise. Now, the Greek word for this means imperium. Don't make it into a marketplace. And that was what really angered him about it, was that there was sailing going on in the temple. And what was supposed to go on in the temple? Worship God. This is one of the things that has happened to me over the years, and I've watched people do, you know, multi-marketing things and everything and they they sell to people in the church and, then, and I'm going that's not right I've never been able to do multi-level marketing because everybody I know is in the church and I refuse to sell to anybody in the church you know even before I was a pastor I just I cannot do it because it's not the place to do it at and I'm not going to play off of my relationship with the people in the church and so Jesus is saying you have made my father's house a marketplace because well, there's a marketplace out there. Go, go to the marketplace, but don't make the temple a marketplace. And he's right here, he's announcing my father to the, to the everybody in the temple. And remember, this is Passover week. What happens on Passover week in Jerusalem at this point? The population swells because everybody is coming to Jerusalem. It's been said that Jerusalem was only a couple couple tens of thousands of people and then when Passover came they would swell to almost a million people hundreds of thousands you know people everywhere all right uh, think about little town of chloride here with our with our 300 people swelling up to being you know seven or eight thousand people you know, that would be what it would be like just people everywhere no place to stay no place to stand and he's announcing this is my father's house and you are going to get not make it a marketplace. This is a quite a statement this is his first big event outside of wine, the, the wine being turned, water being turned to wine and now he's saying this is my father's house and he drives them out with a short small whip. And again, nobody challenges him. And that's one thing that has always struck me. Nobody challenged him at this point. And it's got to be because God was moving very powerfully. Now, he's later on going to drive them out at the end of his ministry. He's going to drive them out of the temple for the same reasons. All right? They did not learn their lesson. They got rid of this troublemaker, and they put, them, put all the salespeople right back in their spots. And so all of this is going to happen. And he says, all of these, in verse 18, Then answered the Jews and said unto him, What sign shows you... Show you unto us, seeing that you have done these things. And Jesus said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then said the Jews, Forty six years was this temple in building, and will you rear it up in three days? But he spoke of the temple of his body. When therefore he was risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this unto them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. So here is Jesus. They're going, they're, they're basically going, what is your proof that you have the authority and power to do this? You're not a priest. You're, you, are, you a, are you a prophet? What is your sign of your prophet that you're a prophet? All through the scriptures, when somebody was a prophet, we see some signs being done to support their position. All right? And so they're looking at Jesus and saying, OK, this wild man's coming in and he's driving out these guys saying that you're 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 making my father's place a marketplace. And they're looking at him and going. All right. Basically, their question is, who gave you the authority? Who gave you the power and, and, and prove it? These are their questions to them. You know, uh, give us a sign. What sign are you going to use to show that this was that this is something that you are have the authority and power to do? And then he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will build it up. Now, they are very literal in their thinking. They're looking around here at the temple that Herod has built up and and looked at, and they're going, "Uh, hey, it took 46 years for this temple to be built to to the level that that it's been built to. And he goes, and you're going to rebuild it in three days? You know, you know, who, basically, you, can you imagine the laughter that was going on at this point? It doesn't record laughter, but can you imagine how much laughter was going on? <laughs> who is this fool? He thinks he can rebuild this temple in three days. And even the disciples did not understand it at this point. They did not understand that he was talking about his death, burial, and resurrection. All right? And nobody else did. You know, he's standing in the temple and it says, destroy this temple... Referring to himself, you know, and it'll come back and, and be rebuilt in three days. But they're standing in the temple. So everybody's looking at him and saying, okay, you, you know, all right, we're looking around. This temple is awfully great. You're, you're going to rebuild it in three days? Who, who do you think you are? Yeah, if they only knew. He created the whole world in six days. The temple would have been no problem to rebuild in three days. All right? But he wasn't referring to that temple. And that's what the disciples said. They, they remembered after he was resurrected. How much did God bring back to their minds after the resurrection? You know, because before this, and we're going to see this over and over. When Jesus spoke of his pending death, all they heard was, you know, you know. I love to think about the Charlie Brown adults when they speak. wah 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 wah. You know, when he would speak about their death, they're going, "Does not compute. Don't you know? Don't listen." Oh, he's talking about power and in the, in the kingdom? Okay, we'll listen. Nope, talking about death, death and coming back? We're, you know, we don't understand this. It doesn't fit our, fit our agenda. And they wouldn't listen. And then when he rose from the dead, all of a sudden, he reminded them of many of these things. He told them. He, he spent time for 40 days. He re-taught them and reminded them what they had been taught. And this is why it's important for us. When we learn something from the scriptures and from God, we need to remember it in the middle of a trial. Because a lot of times we forget what we learned when the trial hits and think, well, God, you're not, you're not behaving the way I think you should behave. So therefore, I'm going to go do things my way because you, you, didn't, tell me, you didn't tell me the truth. And if we just are obedient, we'd find out that God is who he says he is and here he's telling the people you know you're gonna destroy my body and I'm coming back in three days they didn't understand it they didn't understand Paul is gonna tell us later on that we are the temple of God our bodies are the temple of God and God indwells us Paul is gonna take this statement you know destroy this temple and it will come back in three days and he's gonna go each believer is the temple of God And we need to be able to understand that there's a power he indwells us we don't need to go to a church we don't need to go to a synagogue we don't need to go to a temple to worship god because he is in us we theoretically should be worshiping god every day because he is with us so why do we come together in great worship as it's told to us in hebrews forsake not the assembling of ourselves together and so much more as we see the day approaching Because we need each other for strength and accountability and I've told people that people go well I don't have to come to church to be saved. You're right You don't have to come to be church to be saved, but if you want to be a strong strong Christian You better come to church and, and, and minister and be spending time with the church Otherwise, you're going to be weak and anemic Because you can only do so much and you will only go so far when you're facing a trial and you go, well, uh, maybe, I don't know. Nobody, nobody's gonna know if I don't take and do what I'm supposed to do because it's just me, myself, and I and God, and we're, and we're a great team. We don't need anybody else. We need each other for no other reason than to say, hey, how are you doing? You know, I've been talking to somebody and it's very obvious that he is down and depressed and I keep talking to him and he's opening up just a little bit more each time. But he's down, why? He does not have a church home he does not he visits all over the place but he does not have a church home and I'm encouraging him that he needs to find a church home that he can plug into and be ministered unto and this is the thing that we all have to do this is a place that pastors have to do the pastors have to find somebody that is their their mentor their minister when they when they're down and pastors have a bad problem oftentimes of isolating themselves and figuring I'm the top dog in the church I can't I can't uh, be vulnerable to anybody you're in trouble nobody can be that independent of, of the body of Christ well I've got my relationship with Jesus yes that's wonderful I'm glad you do and I have a great relationship with Jesus Jesus and I get along very well and he teaches me from the word but I also listen to a lot of pastors and I have a few people that I will go to when I need help and I need to be encouraged there's a couple people that I'll go to and I say I just need some prayer. I need I need somebody to to reach out and they'll, they'll do the same thing. How are you doing? You know, we need that individual and we need to be doing that as a church reaching out to people when we're saying something's not right. How is there anything we can do to help you? Can we help you in any way? Now, not all the time are they going to say yes. Most of the time they're not going to say yes. But Just reaching out can impress somebody enough to make them say, okay, somebody's wanting me, and maybe they'll reach out to somebody else that can actually, that they feel a little more comfortable reaching out to. But just knowing that somebody cares, it is easy to fall back on on it and get into a self pity party. Especially if nobody calls you or checks up on you and you go, oh, nobody cares for me, and Satan is real good. Yeah, nobody cares for you. You know, forget about them. They don't care about you. They don't, you know, you could drop off the face of the earth and, you know, and if they really knew who you were they wouldn't like you anyway so they they just got to know who you are so don't don't go out there and talk to them because they, they don't love you how often do we spend time listening to the lies of Satan about God and about our fellow believers now am I saying everybody in the church is going to love you the way they're supposed to No, but there are enough people in every church who are the remnant believers in that church that will love you no matter what and reach out to you, and Satan loves to try to separate us with God, lies. God doesn't love you. Why like Jesus died for us? Why would why why would we ever believe that God doesn't love us? Well, if God, if you, if you really admit that you have this doubt about God or this doubt about anything, God wouldn't love you. God loves us. God is not afraid of questions. He is not afraid of us questioning him at all. He he has the answers. He is the truth. And you know what? find the people in the body that love you and are willing to reach out and and just accept you for who you are now does that mean they're gonna let you go into sin and continue in sin not necessarily but because they love you they may say hey you know this is something that you need to change and do we like to be told that we need to change not usually I don't (laughs) I don't even like it when God tells me through the word that I have to change I, I listen to him through the word and I tend to try to listen to people when they tell me I need to make some changes But you know, we all have a prideful nature that doesn't always do what we're supposed to do, and we need to be careful that we're listening, and following, and allowing this to happen. And the last uh, three verses: and when he was in Jerusalem at the now now when he was at Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw his miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that they should testify of man, for he knew what is in man. Now, John does not tell us what he did during this Passover. It says that they saw miracles. Now, the first miracle is he drove the the, the, the money changers and the you know, marketers out of the temple and never got, never got arrested by the priest. But however many other uh, miracles were there, we don't know. John in his book is going to say, if I wrote everything that Jesus did, there would not be enough paper and ink to be able to tell you that. All right. So here he just says, hey, you know, there were some miracles during this period of time and people believed him. But it, very curiously here he says, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. He wasn't needing their he wasn't needing their support because he understood the fickleness of people one day you're gonna like you one day they're not gonna like you one day they're gonna like what you're saying the next day they're not gonna like what you're saying and Jesus all through the the Gospels frequently said things that drove people away now Jesus violated everything we're told to, to grow a church Tell everybody what they want to hear. Encourage them. Make them feel good. And never say anything that's going to make them feel bad. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about, about the need of, of, of uh, the reality of hell. To make them all feel good. Jesus never did any of that stuff. More than one occasion, you know, he would say something and it says, many left him that day. On one particular statement, he turned to the disciples and said, are you all going to leave me too? I wonder how many people left him the entire crowd and he's got just the disciples left he's going to go are you guys leaving too it is important for us to speak truth even if it's going to offend somebody not not for the purpose of offending them but to speak it in love even though it might offend and this is something that I'm very much aware of there I know there are people in chloride that won't come to this church because I call sin sin all right and I've had people tell me, you "Go, well, I'm not there because you said this." Usually, it has to do with homosexuality or fornication. All right, uh, you said you called it sin, so I'm not coming to your church. I go, well, I don't know what else I'd be teaching if I don't teach the Bible. I don't know what I'd be teaching. So, this is where He, Jesus, said He understood that people are fickled. Now, been in church for just 52 years myself, and. I can't tell you how many times my toes have been stomped on by some pastor or teacher in a Bible study or or message. Uh, I almost think if it's not been stepped on, somebody else's toes had to be stepped on that day. But, you know, I've seen people leave church because some sin was called out that was was their pet sin. Instead of repenting and saying, God, okay, I hear the message. And I've told you all many times I really don't understand how all these radio pastors get together and and, and plan their messages just for me on certain weeks. You know? And I say that tongue in cheek because I know they're not. I know it's the Holy Spirit, but you know, have you ever been in a place where it seems like every message is geared toward what you're struggling with? I know. I'm not staring at any one person. <laughs> but it is true. We do get this way where we feel, you know, uh, wow, has the pastor been watching me all this week? You know, Has this teacher been following me all week? Because they're talking about exactly what I'm going through. And this is what Jesus said. He goes, he knew people would not stay faithful. And the last one says, and he needed not that they should testify of him. He didn't need their testimony. Why? Because the father had said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He, he did not need their testimony to to prove who he was. So that's referring to him, it's not him referring to, I thought it meant that he didn't need anyone else to say, like, oh, that guy's a really bad person, because he already knew the art of the people. You know, N- that no, he's talking about them. He didn't need their testimony, because he knew what was in their heart. Right. About right, their testimony about him. About not him. Not no, about, their, yeah. Their testimony of him. He didn't need them saying, you're God, you're Jesus, you're the Messiah. Because he knew what was in their heart. What was in their heart? Wickedness. All right. Jeremiah said that the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. Who can know it? Jesus knows the heart. And what ends up happening to us so many times is we start taking uh, praise and honor from people. And then we get upset when somebody says something that we don't like. Yeah. And this is, I've said this so many times, I am not surprised when sinners sin. It doesn't surprise me. Why? Because they're sinners. All right? Now, I've also said it disappoints me when Christians do, because they should be better, but they're still sinners, so they do. I'm not fully surprised. But I get disappointed when Christians are falling into these sin, sinful activities, because they have the opportunity to live at a higher level but they're still sinners so I am not surprised that they sin. Why? Because I sin. I have the same problem. I've been walking with them for 52 years and I still sin. I wish I didn't, but I still do. And so Jesus was not going to trust himself to any of the people because he knew that they were fickled. He knew that they were going to walk away when he said hard things that they didn't like. And so he says, I'm not going to depend on them. What did that teach the disciples? Speak the truth and not be dependent on whether people like you or dislike you. You are, you are my disciples, follow me. What does it mean to us? We should speak the truth in love and, and in kindness, but speak the truth. Follow him and not be worried about what other people say about us. And that can get hard sometimes, especially if it's somebody that you've really gone, drawn close to and all of a sudden they come against you. And it's like, oh, my goodness, uh, I thought we were good friends. And all of a sudden, there's these attacks on you. And Jesus said he's not committing himself to any person. Now, this gets hard because we all have this natural desire. We want to be loved. We want to be liked. And it gets very easy for us to, to enjoy the praise of friends and, and fellow people in the church. But we cannot allow ourselves to be dependent upon their praise. We have to take our stance and say, I'm going to stand with God no matter what. And hopefully others in the church will stand with us. But whether they do or don't, we need to stand for God and not be committed to other people. And maybe our example will bring them along, back along. But it's very important. Where do we stand? We stand with God. I depend on God, not anybody else. I enjoy the support of the church. I enjoy when people are in the in the same path and everything, but I'm not committed to the people. I'm committed to God. And we see people like Jeremiah who God says, you know, you're going to keep preaching and nobody's going to listen to you. I would not have liked to have been Jeremiah preaching for, you know, several decades and nobody listened, you know, Especially not the people that made it could make a change in anything you know they kept throwing him in prison and beating him and threatening his life and you know all these years nobody listened and they went into captivity not listening you know imagine being Noah building a boat for a hundred and twenty years telling everybody God's bringing judgment and nobody listens you know, that had to be can you imagine God telling you now is the time to go in or closing the doors and there's nobody you spoke for 120 years while you're building this boat of judgment coming and nobody followed if he, was now he, must have been. If, if he allowed it to work on him he could have been very frustrated years, you can go, okay. it could be very frustrating you know I've spent all this time pouring into people and nobody nobody is listened and it barely had his family listening because they weren't all that nice either, especially, especially Ham. Ham was very sinful when they came off the boat. Yeah, and ends up having a whole problem of you know with his generation and you know following him. So we need to be able to make sure that our dependence is on God, not others. And that goes for our spouses, our best friends, members of the church. It doesn't matter who it is, our focus must be on God and not anybody else because everybody else is going to let us down at some critical junction everybody else will let us down which is why we have to follow God Lord we ask you to go with us about our our business Lord teach us to depend more and more on you help us to see you and to walk with you in great great uh, faithfulness and follow you in all that we do and we thank you in Jesus name amen listening friend do you know where you'll go after you die without the gift of Jesus it will be an eternity in hell without God good works will not get you there for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God not of works lest any man should boast to spend eternity with God we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ for all of sin and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord to be assured eternal life we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.